0: We are in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 21, and we're sort of getting a serious run at uh, Judah. We've been talking about it for a while, and it does for quite a number of chapters, uh, but this will finish up in 24. So, 21. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, and will draw my sword from its sheath, and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north, and all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. One of the things that we've said over and over, which is a true thing, is God judges nations in addition to judging individuals. And a nation can get to the point where even the righteous inside of it can't save it. But there are lots and lots of nations that prolong their existence because of the existence of the righteous within them. The example we have there is Sodom, where God is preparing to go down and sand the place off, And we have this negotiation that goes on between Abraham and God, where God finally relents and says, if I can find ten righteous men in the city, that's one city, then I will not destroy it. And, of course, we know the story that he is not able to find ten. He's only able to find Lot. So what he then does is takes Lot out of there and goes ahead and destroys the city. So what this is saying is that Israel has come to a stage in wickedness where it is going to be sanded off. In that process, there are going to be righteous that are going to be taken right along with the wicked. And so God is saying that at this point, there's no more hope for that city and I'm gonna take it out and it's gonna start over. One of the things that he is saying is, the church you go to isn't gonna make any difference. And one of the things that is sort of rampant in the body of Messiah is, well, doesn't matter how wicked everything gets around me because when things get really tough, I'm going to be taken out of here. They may get taken out of there, but not the way they're planning on getting taken out of there. As in previous chapters, God did go through and mark those who were to be saved. And the criterion for getting marked by God was what? Anybody know? Crying out against what was going on. So one of the things that is prevalent in the body of Christ is this hands-off politics, that's, that's all dirty stuff and I don't want to be involved in that. And what God is saying is if the righteous don't get involved in that, things go downhill very badly. And when it comes time then to judge that society, the righteous go right along with them. So it is not the case that you can sit back in your pew and point fingers at all those sinners out there and say, they better straighten up. You have an affirmative... Role in going out there and trying to help them get straightened up. And it's a matter of self-defense. Verse 6, As for you, son of man, groan with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan before their eyes, and they will say to you, Why do you groan? You shall say, Because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt, and all hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming, and it will be fulfilled, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice? You have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. That doesn't read flowingly. What the commentary that I have says this means is... God has tried to chasten them with the rod. In other words, he sent prophets and sent people to talk to them, and they haven't paid any attention. So now what's going to happen is the sword, and don't come back to me saying, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We didn't know this was going to happen. In other words, I've sent you lots and lots of prophets to correct you, and you didn't pay any attention with them. You despised the rod. Verse 11, So the sword is given to be polished, that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished, to be given to the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the peoples of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Strike, therefore, upon your thigh, for it will not be a testing. What could it do if you despise the rod, declares the Lord? The sense of it, at least in this translation, is there isn't going to be another chance. This is not like striking a rebellious child where the intention here is to correct the behavior. That's no longer appropriate. What's happening here is destruction. Striking the thigh and the sword brings up images of Yeshua from Revelation 14. As for you, son of man, prophesy. Clap your hands and let the sword come down twice. Yes, three times. The sword for those to be slain. It is a sword for the great slaughter, which surrounds them, that their heart may melt and may stumble. At all their gates I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is made like lightning. It is taken up for slaughter. Cut sharply to the right. Set yourself to the left. Wherever your face is directed, I also will clap my hands, and I will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken. So this, clap your hands and let the sword come down once, twice, three times total destruction. And we know, in fact, that is what happened. 18, the word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword for the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to a city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Ribbah of the Ammonites and to Judah unto Jerusalem, the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He strikes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem, to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. But to them it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance, that it may be taken. What this is talking about is as Nebuchadnezzar comes down, he's coming out of Babylon, which is over here, and he's got to come up through the Fertile Crescent to the river Euphrates up here at Carchemish, and then he's going to come down, and he can either go after the Ammonites, which are over here, or he can go after Jerusalem, which is there. And so what he's doing is he's meeting at Riblah, which is up here, and what he's trying to do is decide whether or not he's going to take out the Ammonites or whether he's going to take out Jerusalem. So what he does is he calls a staff meeting and they do some divination. They take a handful of arrows and scatter them you know, like pickup sticks and read them somehow. The other thing they do is they consult teraphim, which are idols, and they'll slaughter an animal and they have people that are skilled in reading the and making divination from the entrails. He shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver. Indicates that what he's doing is in his own pagan way, he is consulting his gods to figure out which way he's going to go. What this says is that God will in fact make all these omens point to Jerusalem. So what's going to happen is Nebuchadnezzar, through his oracles that he's going to be consulting up here with his generals, is going to make a decision that I'm going to take out Jerusalem. I'm not at the moment going to go take out the Ammonites. The next thing that happens is in verse 23 but to them it will seem like false divination. What he's saying there is remember we talked earlier that Israel was standing on the promises of God. God has promised us this land forever and The northern kingdom has been sanded off. We're the only ones that are left. So therefore, the promise must apply to us so nothing bad can happen to us because we've got God's promise. And so one of the things that they will think is that this attack from Nebuchadnezzar is not going to succeed. The divination that Nebuchadnezzar got, which is go to Jerusalem, is a false divination. He's not going to have success there. And we know, of course, that that's not the case. He, in fact, does have great success there, 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that all your deeds, your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low, bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs and I will give it to him. Ruin, 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 repeated three times. Remember we talked earlier about striking the sword three times. So this is a thrice repeated ruin, which is an indication that destruction is going to be total. And remove the turban and take off the crown. Obviously, what that means is the king is going to have his crown and his rich raiment stripped from him. Now, in verse 21, a ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Remember, we're talking that Israel is standing on the promises of God. And what this is saying is that you are going to be ruined until the one comes to whom judgment belongs, who would be the Messiah. That goes along with my theory that the return from Babylon is a temporary phenomenon where Judah comes back just long enough to get the Messiah born and it's back into exile. Verse 28, And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, Say, a sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter. In other words, when the decision gets made up here, which (coughs) one to attack, the Ammonites go, wow, dodged a bullet, dodged an arrow there. And in fact, they conspire against Jerusalem and they cause rebellion and stuff and they they make all sorts of trouble for Jerusalem. And what this is saying is, uh, Ammonites, your turn's coming. So just because Nebuchadnezzar, going down, went right instead of left, doesn't mean that you have escaped what's going to happen to you. 29. While they see for you false visions, while they divine lies for you to place you on the necks of the profane, wicked, whose day has come, the time of their final punishment. So what he's saying is, while you have your reprieve, you are getting false vision and you have false prophets who are divining lies for you to make you think that you are going to escape this. 30. Return it to its sheath. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. And I will pour out my indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath. And I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall be no more remembered for I the Lord have spoken." And not only are they gone, but they're going to be judged in the land where they came from. All right, now's when it gets grim. Pretty grim now, chapter 22. "'And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "'And you, son of man, will you judge the bloody city? "'Then declare to her all her abominations. "'You shall say, Thus says the Lord God, "'a city that shed blood in her midst, "'so that her time may come, And that makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed. And defiled by the idols that you have made. And you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore I have made you a reproach to the nation. And a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. As we've said many, many, many times, the thing that finally moves God to act is bloodshed, violence, injustice. So lots of nations live in sin for a time, and all sorts of nasty things happen, but the thing that finally tips God over the edge is bloodshed. And if you remember back in the Torah, there are specific instructions for handling blood, There are specific instructions for clearing bloodshed from the land. You remember in the Torah it says if you find a man in the field who's been murdered and nobody has any idea what happened. In other words, this is a murder that's happened in secret. What you do is the two nearest cities measure and figure out who's closest. And then you take a cow, a heifer, and you take her down to running water and you break her neck and you make an oath that nobody here knows how this Person died. At the end of all that, the land is cleared from the bloodshed. So there's a procedure for clearing bloodshed. Of course, if you know who did it, then there's another procedure, which is to say you try him and execute him. But in all cases, blood has to be cleared. And what God is saying here is since you are a bloody city, Jerusalem, the only thing at this point that's going to clear that is. When you get sanded off, Torah says you need to do that lest the land vomit you out. And what's happening here is the blood has risen to the point where the land is vomiting them out. If You take that back then to what I said earlier about God judging nations and righteousness and promulgation of public righteousness is, if nothing else, self-defense. When the number of righteous people drops, to whatever the critical level is. And I don't know what that level is. But God does. place gets sanded off. And there's two things that move God to act. One is violence and the other one is prayer. Six, behold, the princes of Israel in you, every one according to his power, have been bent on shedding blood. So again, we're talking about societal system here. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbath. There are men in you who slander to shed blood, and people in you who eat on the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. Now there's a progression here. The princes are not doing justice. The princes are in fact shedding blood. In other words, the government, which is supposed to be the administrator of justice, is not doing that. Then you've got disrespect for parents. Hello, we've got institutionalized disrespect for parents in this country. The whole entertainment industry is designed to promote disrespect for parents. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. In other words, you cheat people who can't help themselves. Fatherless and the widow are wronged. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbath. All that's pretty clear. There are men in you who slander to shed blood. In other words, there are people who will tell lies about other people in order to get them killed. They will bear false witness that results in capital punishment. And we saw that, for example, in the northern kingdom where Ahab wanted the vineyard. So Jezebel went out and got some people to accuse the vineyard's owner of blasphemy. And on the basis of that false accusation, he was killed by the state. He was executed. And then his vineyard goes over to the king. That's what's being talked about here. What it's saying is that kind of thing goes on in the southern kingdom as well. People in you who eat on the mountains. This is people who go up to idols and eat, meat sacrificed to idols in the high places and commit lewdness in your midst. Remember, that's what we had with the Midianite babes that were coming into the camp of Israel and seducing people. And one of the things about pagan religions is they are extremely sexual. Because God knows that sex is one of the most powerful things that will attract and trap people. So Satan uses sex in pagan worship for the express purpose of ensnaring people. Ten, in you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are unclean in their menstrual impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. That reads like the New York Times or the National Enquirer, 13. Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain you have made, and at the blood that has been in your midst. Can your courage endure, or can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you among the countries, and I will consume your uncleanness out of you, and you shall be profaned by your own doing in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord. One of the things that God has said, back up in verse 4, You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed, and defiled by the idols that you have made, and you have brought your days near, the appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nation and a mockery to all the countries. God says, I am not going to make an end of you because I need you for a bad example. That's what he's saying. I need you for a bad example. Therefore, I am not going to completely destroy you. Because remember we said earlier, God says, you're going to be my people. You have agreed to it. That's what you said at Sinai. When you made the oath at Sinai, you said you would be my people, and I said I would be your God. That's not going away. What we really want to have happen is, I want you to glorify me because you are the most blessed and the wisest of all nations. I want you to glorify me because they will all see what a great and good God I am by how prosperous you are. That's what we both want. But understand, you are going to be my people, and you are going to glorify me, and we're either going to do it the easy way, or we're going to do it the hard way, but it's going to happen. So what God is saying is you are not, in fact, going to go out of existence because I need you for a bad example. 17. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have become dross, Therefore, behold, I will gather you in the midst of Jerusalem as one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so shall you be melted in the midst of it and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you." I don't think that needs any emendation. 23, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. For priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common, neither have they taught the difference between unclean and clean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Remember in the earlier chapters we were talking about as you had prophets, men of God supposedly, who were going around giving comforting prophecies, giving cover and justification to the behavior of the powerful in Jerusalem. And one of the things that he has against his priests is they have made no distinction between the holy and the common, neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. That's what a priest is supposed to do. That sounds like a good part of Christianity. And in many cases, in Christianity, it is ignorance. It is not willful. In other words, if your average Baptist preacher understood that the laws of kashrut still apply, I will guarantee you that you would hear nothing but pigs leaving the Baptist church just as fast as they could go. The reason that they do that stuff is because they have been given bad doctrine, not because they're evil. What we're talking about here is priests that know better and are profaning their office for profit. We are not talking about people who don't know any better because they have been fed false doctrine. Now the people who originated that false doctrine 2,000 years ago, I suspect they've got problems. Your average seminary student today who has grown up and has been taught that the things of the Torah are for the Hebrews or the Jews and none of that applies to you anymore because Jesus took it all away, that's a false teaching. But the people who believe that are not evil. So this doesn't apply in that case. Let's finish up chapter 22. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest. I mean, it's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. This is not talking about inadvertently eating ham on Easter Sunday. 28. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. So what he's saying is, the rulers in the land are shedding blood for dishonest gain, and the church is telling them, you go, guy. I've got a vision from God that this is okay. We're not talking about individual people who are psycho. We're talking about the institutional church who has got people who are in the business of hearing the word of God that are giving interpretations and false visions for the purpose of bucking up these dishonest princes. 29. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have depressed the poor and needy. They have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And I sought for a man among them who could build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I have found none. And again, this goes right back to Sodom and Gomorrah, isn't it? He's looking for somebody who is righteous, who is able to stand and prevent the destruction of this place, and there isn't anybody. 31, therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. I have returned their way upon their heads, measure for measure. God is not being excessive. He is not having a bad day. This is measure for measure. And the only thing that will serve is what actually happens. And on that cheerful note, would someone like to close in prayer?